Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. We're reading today from a Charles Spurgeon sermon, as we often do, and we're doing those sermons that had to do with the sovereignty of God. He preached a lot on that. We don't preach on that all the time, but it just so happens in these days, these last few days, we've been doing it a lot, and it's okay because a lot of churches don't do it at all. <laughs> Maybe your church is one, I don't know. We're in the middle of that message. We'll try to finish it right now. He used as his text, 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Our text tells us that our, and this is just a little bit from yesterday, the last time, our salvation is according to his own purpose. It's a strange thing that men should be so angry against the purpose of God. We ourselves have a purpose. We permit our fellow creatures to have some will of their own, and especially in, in giving away their own goods. But my God is to be bound and fettered by men and not permitted to do as he wills with his own. But be this known unto ye, O men, that reply against God, that he giveth no account of his matters, but asks of you, Can I not do as I will with my own? He ruleth in heaven and in the armies of this lower world, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? But then the text, lest we should make any mistake, adds, According to his own purpose and grace. The purpose is not founded on foreseen merit, but upon grace alone. It is grace, all grace, Nothing but grace from first to last. Man stands shivering outside, a condemned criminal, and God, sitting upon the throne, sends the herald to tell him that he is willing to receive sinners and to pardon them. The sinner replies, Well, I'm willing to be pardoned if I'm permitted to do something in order to earn pardon. If I could stand before the king and claim that I have done something to win his favor, I'm quite willing to come. But the herald replies, No, if you are pardoned, you must understand it is entirely and wholly as an act of grace on God's part. He sees nothing good in you. He knows that there is nothing good in you. He's willing to take you just as you are, black and bad and wicked and undeserving. He's willing to give you graciously what he would not sell to you and what he knows you cannot earn of him. Will you have it? Now, naturally, every man says, No, I will not be saved in that style. Well then, soul, remember that you will never be saved at all. For God's way is salvation by grace. You will have to confess, if ever you are saved, my dear hearer, that you never deserved one single blessing from the God of grace. You will have to give all the glory to his holy name if ever you get to heaven. And mark you, even in the matter of the acceptance of this offered mercy, you'll never accept it unless he makes you willing. He does freely present it to every one of you, and he honestly bids you come to Christ and live. But come you never will, I know, unless the effectual grace which first provided mercy shall make you willing to accept that mercy. And so the text tells us it is his own purpose and grace. 
Again, in order to shut out everything like boasting, the whole is spoken of as a gift. Do notice that, lest, uh, for we are such straying sheep in this matter, lest we should still slip out of the field. It is added, purpose and grace which he gave us, and not which he sold us, offered us, but which he gave us. He must have a word here which shall be a a death blow to all merit, which he gave us. It was given. And what can be more free than a gift? And what more evidently of grace? But the gift is bestowed through a medium which glorifies Christ. It is written, which was given us in Christ Jesus. We ask to have mercy from the wellhead of grace, but we ask not even to make the bucket in which it is to be brought to us. Christ is to be the sacred vessel in which the grace of God is to be presented to our thirsty lips. Now where is boasting? Why, surely there it sits at the foot of the cross and sings, God forbid, that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not grace and grace alone? Yet further, a period is mentioned and added before the world began. Those last words seem to me forever to lay prostrate and all idea of anything of our own merits in saving ourselves, because it is here witnessed that God gave us grace before the world began. Where were you then? What hand had you in it before the world began? Fly back, if you can, in imagination to the ancient years when those venerable mountains, that elder birth of nature, were not yet formed. When world and sun and moon and stars were all in embryo in God's great mind. When the unnavigated sea of space had had never been disturbed by wings of seraph, and the awful silence of eternity had never been startled by the song of cherubim, when God dwelt alone. If you can conceive that that time before all time, that vast eternity, it was then he gave us grace in Christ Jesus. What? O soul, hadst thou to do with that? Where were thy merits then? Where were you yourself? (laughs) O thou small dust of the balance, thou insect of a day, where wert thou? See how Jehovah reigned, dispensing mercy as he would, and ordaining unto eternal life without taking counsel of man or angel, for neither man or angel then had an existence. That it might be all of grace, he gave us grace before the world began. I have honestly read out the doctrine of the text, and nothing more. If such is not the meaning of the text, I do not know the meaning of it, and I cannot therefore tell you what it is. But I believe that I have given the natural and grammatical teaching of the text. If you do not like the doctrine, why, I I cannot help it. I did not make the text, and if I have to expound it, I must expound it honestly, as it is in my Master's word. 
and I pray you to receive what he says, whatever you may do with what I say. Roman numeral two, I shall want your patience while I try to show the uses of this doctrine. The doctrine of grace has been put by in the in the lumber chamber. It's acknowledged to be true, for it is confessed in most creeds. It's in the Church of England articles. It's in the confessions of all sorts of Protestant Christians, except those who are avowedly Arminian. But how little is it ever preached? It is put among the relics of the past. It is considered to be a respectable sort of uh, retired officer who is not expected to see any other act of service. Now, I believe that it is not a superannuated officer in the master's army, but that it is full of force and vigor as ever. But what is the use of it? Why, first then, it is clear from the connection that it has a tendency to embolden the man who receives it. Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed, and he gives this as a motive. How can a man be ashamed when he believes that God has given him grace in Christ Jesus before the world was? Suppose the man to be very poor. Oh, says he, what, what matters it? Though I have but a little oil in the cruise and a little meal in the barrel, yet I have a lot and a portion in everlasting things. My name is not in Doomsday Book nor in Burke's Peerage, but it is the book of God's election and was there before the world began. Such a man dares look the proudest of his fellows in the face. This was the doctrine on which the brave old Ironsides fed. The men who, when they rode to battle with the war cry of the Lord of hosts, made the cavaliers fly before them like chaff before the wind. No doctrine like it for putting a backbone into a man and making him feel that he is made for something better than to be trodden down like straw for the dunghill beneath a despot's heel. Oh, sneer you will. Uh, the, the elect of God derive a nobility from the divine choice which no royal patent can outshine. I would that free grace were more preached because it gives men something to believe with confidence. The great mass of professing Christians know nothing of doctrine. Their religion consists in going a certain number of times to a place of worship, but they have no care for truth one way or another. I speak without any prejudice in this matter, but I have talked with a large number of persons in the course of my very extensive pastorate who have been for years members of other churches. And when I have asked them a, a few questions upon doctrinal matters, it did not seem to me that they were in error. They were perfectly willing to believe almost anything that any earnest man might teach them. But they did not know anything. They had no minds of their own and no definite opinions. Our children who have learned the Westminster Assembly's Confession of Faith know more about the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of the Bible than hundreds of grown-up people who attend a ministry which very eloquently teaches nothing. It was observed by a very excellent critic not long ago that if you were to hear 
13 lectures on astronomy or geology, you might get a pretty good idea of what the science was and the theory of the person who gave the lectures, but that if you were to hear 1,300 sermons from some ministers, you would not know at all what they were preaching about or, or what their doctrinal sentiments were. It ought not to be so. Is not this the reason why Puseyism spreads so, and all sorts of errors have such a foothold? Because our people as a whole do not know what they believe? The doctrines of the gospel, if well received, give to a man something which he knows and which he holds and which will become dear to him, for which he would be prepared to die if the fires of persecution were again kindled. Better still is it that this doctrine not only gives the man something to hold, but it holds the man. Let a man once have burnt into him that salvation is of God and not of man, and that God's grace is to be glorified and not human merit, and you will never get that belief out of him. It is the rarest thing in all the world to hear of such a man ever apostatizing from his faith. Other doctrine is slippery ground, like the slope of a mountain composed of loose earth and rolling stones, down which the traveler may slide long before he can ever get a transient foothold. But this, this is like a granite step upon the eternal pyramid of truth. Get your feet on this, and there's no fear of slipping so far as doctrinal standing is concerned. If we would have our churches in England well instructed and holding fast the truth, we must bring out the grand old verity of the eternal purpose of God in Christ Jesus before the world began. Oh, may the Holy Spirit write it on our hearts. Moreover, my brother, this doctrine overwhelms, as with an avalanche, all the claims of priestcraft. Let it be told to men that they are saved by God, and they say at once, well, then what's the good of the priest? If they are told it is God's grace, then they say, then you do not need our money to buy masses and absolutions. And down goes the priest at once. Beloved, this is the battering ram that God uses with which to shake the gates of hell. How much more forcible than the pretty essays of many divines, which have no more power than bulrushes, no more light than smoking flax. What do you suppose people used to, to meet in woods for in persecuting times? They meet by thousands outside the town of Antwerp and such like places on the continent, in jeopardy of their lives. Do you suppose they would ever have come together to hear that poor milk-and-water theology of this age, or to receive the lukewarm milk-and-water of our modern anti-Calvinists? No, no, not they. Not they, my brethren. They needed stronger meat and more savory diet to attract them thus. Do you imagine that when it was death to listen to the preacher, men under the shadows of night and amid the wings of tempest would then listen to philosophical essays or to mere precepts or to diluted, adulterated, soulless, theological suppositions? No, there's no energy in that kind of thing to draw men together under fear of their lives. 
But what did bring them together in the dead of night, amidst the glare of lightning and the roll of thunder, what, what was it brought them together? Well, the doctrine of the grace of God, the doctrine of Jesus, and of his servants Paul and Augustine and Luther and Calvin. For there is something in that doctrine which touches the heart of the Christian and gives him food such as his soul loveth, savory meat, suitable to his heaven-born appetite. To hear this, men braved death and defied the sword. And if we're to see once again the scarlet hat plucked from the wearer's head and the shaven crowns with all the gaudy trumpery of Rome sent back to the place from whence they came, and heaven grant that they may take our Puseyite established church with them, it must be by declaring the doctrines of the grace of God. When these are declared and vindicated in every place, we shall yet again make these enemies of God and man to know that they cannot stand their ground for a moment. And every, where men of God wield the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, by preaching the doctrines of the grace of God. Brethren, let the man receive these truths. Let them be written in his heart by the Holy Spirit, and they will make him look up. He will say, God has saved me. And he will walk with a constant eye to God. He will not forget to see the hand of God in nature and in providence. He will, on the contrary, discern the Lord working in all places and will humbly adore him. He will not give to laws of nature or schemes of state the glory due to the Most High. But will have respect unto the unseen ruler. What the Lord saith to me, that will I do. That's the believer's language. What is his will? That will I follow. What is his word? That will I believe. What is his promise? On that I will live. It is a blessed habit to teach a man to look up. Look up to God in all things. At the same time, this doctrine makes a man look down upon himself. Ah, saith he, I am nothing. There is nothing in me to merit esteem. I have no goodness of my own. If saved, I cannot praise myself. I cannot in any way ascribe to myself honor. God has done it. God has done it. Nothing makes a man so humble, but nothing makes him so glad. Nothing lays him so low at the mercy seat, but nothing makes him so brave to look his fellow man in the face. It is a grand truth. Would to God ye all knew its mighty power. Lastly, this precious truth is full of comfort to the sinner. That is why I love it. As it has been preached by some, it has been exaggerated and made into a bugbear. Why, there are some who preach the doctrine of election as though it were a a line of sharp pikes to keep a sinner from coming to Christ, as though it were a <clears throat> sharp, glittering halbert <laughs> to be pushed into the breast of a coming sinner, to keep him from mercy. Now it is not so. Sinner, uh, whoever you may be, your, uh, your greatest comfort should be to know that salvation is by grace. Why, man, if it were by merit, what would become of you? <clears throat> Suppose that God saved men on account of their merits. Where would your, your drunkards be? Where would your swearers be? 
he who uh, you who have been unclean and unchaste and and you whose hearts have cursed God and you who even now uh, you do not love him where would you be but when it is all of grace why then all your past life however black and filthy it may be need not keep you from coming to Jesus Christ receiveth sinners God has elected sinners he has elected some of the blackest of sinners. Why not you? He receives everyone that comes to him. He will not cast out. There have been some who have hated him, insulted him to his face, that have burned his servants alive and have persecuted him in his members. But as soon as even they have cried, God be merciful to me, a sinner, he has given them mercy at once. And he will give it to you if you be led to seek it. If I had to tell you that you were to work out your own salvation apart from his grace, it were a sad lookout for you. But when it comes to you thus, oh, black, there is washing for you. Dead, oh, there's life for you. Naked, there's raiment for you. All undone and ruined, well, here's a complete salvation for you. Oh, soul, mayest thou have grace to lay hold of it. And then you and I together will sing to the praise of the glory of divine grace. That's from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. Wonderful message, as, as all of uh, Spurgeon seem to be, to me anyway. I hope you're enjoying them, or at least profiting from them. I don't, I'm not an entertainer, nor was he. But you know what I mean when I say enjoy. It's a spiritual enjoyment we, we get from hearing this man. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, it's, uh, as I speak, Thursday, but you're hearing this on Friday, if you're with me in real time. Uh, tomorrow, the next time you hear something from me, will be the poems we've been going through. The actual songs, but without the music of the great classics of, of our of our faith. And then uh, Sunday, we don't usually have anything on. And then Monday, we will start the book of Ezekiel. I've just started studying part three of that study today. I'll be starting part, part one with you on Monday. It is an important and incredibly wonderful study. I hope that you will join me. God bless you. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And Lord willing, we get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.